0: Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Barrett Brooks is with us today, and Barrett is the COO at ConvertKit. And ConvertKit is a bootstrap startup building email marketing software on a mission to help creators earn a living in the past barrett led growth at fizzle.co and he also worked for best selling author seth godin who actually wrote the cover testimonial for my first book double double he founded a company called living for monday where he helped college students find jobs that actually matter which i really want to hear about and barrett is also a servant leader sustainability advocate and optimist a writer and outdoor enthusiast based in new york city and he fundamentally believes that business is one of the most powerful forces for good in the world. So Barrett, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. Um, living in New York City, if you're an outdoor enthusiast, we should just switch cities. You should come to Vancouver.
1: <laughs> well, I uh, spent a few years in Portland, Oregon, and that was much more catered to the outdoor life than New York. That's for sure.
0: There you go. I love Portland. I, I did a lot of work back there. Um, years ago, I was starting a company up in, in Oregon and in Washington. I really love that place.
1: It's a good place to live. It's a, a great quality of life out there.
0: Have you ever seen the show Portlandia?
1: I have, although I had to stop watching it for the same reason <laughs> that I have trouble watching uh, the, oh, whatever the startup show is called about. Silicon Valley. Yeah, Silicon Valley. <laughs> same, same problems on both. It just, just feels too real. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> my uh, One of my kids is watching a show right now called Flight of the Concords. I'm like, oh, we got to get them to progress to the next level. Yeah. Um, so tell us, tell us about your journey and, and kind of your journey as a COO. How did you end up uh, where you are now and how did you kind of get some of the skills that you're using today? Oh, wow. And, and maybe even before that, tell us a little bit about ConvertKit just so we can kind of get up a good frame of reference. Sure. Okay. So ConvertKit is
1: a software company. We're bootstrapped. We've been around about five years. All of our high-level metrics are public and we see part of that as being a goal of educating future startup creators, so I can share that we're doing about $13 million in annual recurring revenue right now. And uh, we have a team of 37 people. And our, our mission, like you shared at the at the outset of the show, is to help creators earn a living. We think of creators as YouTubers, small-time makers, podcasters, bloggers. And what's interesting is they've got this online business that its goal is to help them earn a living doing work they love. And that's been a theme throughout my career. And so it's really personal work for me that I really enjoy. And we're having a lot of fun doing it as a team. It's, it's a great audience. And we've got some big players in the industry that we're trying to compete with. So that keeps us on our toes. Uh, so that's a little bit about ConvertKit. I'll take you back to the beginning of my career, which is where some of the skills I'm using now come from. And I started my career as a management consultant at Ernst & Young. They had just brought back their consulting practice after having sold it off years before. And I was one of two staffers in the Atlanta office, which meant I got a ton of exposure to senior executives at clients and also to the partners at uh, EY. So that really helped me develop this, uh, you know, in the big business world, it's, it's executive presence. It's the ability to be in rooms with people much, much more senior than you in often, often cases and carry yourself well. I think that was a big skill that I developed then that's carried forward to now where I understand how to interact with people at different levels of organizations um, and how to adjust my leadership style to different types of people and different scenarios. Mm. Uh, So that was a big thing there, but obviously as a management consultant, your job is not just to communicate with people, but to fix problems and often pretty hairy problems. For sure. So that really helped steep me in some good frameworks for, evaluating problems, finding opportunities to grow businesses and then solving them systematically and not just uh, with one off solutions. So it all started there.
0: Now did they what kind of training do they give you in kind of the, the problem solving process and, and in the I guess the consulting that you're doing?
1: Yeah, I like to call that the drop you in the deep end training. <laughs> um, it What was interesting was that being one of only a couple staffers in that office uh, as they were building that practice back out was that they didn't have a ton of training established for lower levels of the organization. They had a lot of partner and director training at the time, uh, but they weren't prepared to train the staffers up. And so it truly was just, hey, go find a project that you want to get staffed on and pitch yourself to a partner and then get going. And that was my whole entrance into the business. And Uh, Coming out of school, that's quite a challenge, but uh, it was good. It taught me a lot.
0: So are you coming out of an MBA program into that? Are you coming out of an undergraduate degree into that that work? Undergraduate, yeah. Wow. They really throw you into the fire then.
1: They did. You know, I think now they've really built out a training. You know, if you go to somewhere like Bain & Company or McKinsey or places like that, they've got intense training that they put people through. And I think EY since built a a great program now.
0: Sure. Now, how long have you been with um, ConvertKit?
1: I've been at ConvertKit two years now. And I started off, I was kind of doing in this uh, floater kind of special projects role. We had a bunch of big ideas we wanted to execute on, uh, putting on a conference, uh, doing a series of documentaries about our customers and things like that, that I came in and led at first and then moved into a role as director of marketing where I led all of our um, paid acquisition, all of our content marketing, all of our brand marketing, and kind of built a team out there before moving into this role as COO.
0: How many customers would you guys have ballpark, do you think?
1: Yeah, we're right at about 20,000 paying customers.
0: So 20,000 paying customers. Okay. So, uh, and, and what kind of growth have you had in the company since you've been there over the couple of years?
1: Let's see. When I got here, I think we were at $300,000 a month in, in monthly recurring revenue and we're now at going on, I think 1.2 million.
0: Yeah. So four that times ballpark. that growth. Yeah. And then in, how many employees when you got there?
1: We were right in the 20
0: ballpark, I want to say. Oh, you were. Okay. So they, they really did push a lot of their um, their margin into hiring then it sounds like in the early days. We did. Yeah.
1: We've, um, you know, compared to uh, peer level organizations, we have not hired nearly as fast with that same kind of growth. You know, we've grown at 4X and uh, grown the team a little under 2x in that time which has been one of our greatest challenges certainly is keeping the team small but continuing the growth
0: and do you, do you outsource or all of your employees in one office how does your uh, team makeup look right now or your office makeup look
1: yeah so we're 100 percent remote as a company uh, we have no offices we have of our 37 people they're spread out across 24 cities and seven countries
0: okay i love this so this is where we're going to be diving into now who would your big competitors be then
1: So our biggest competitors, um, we kind of look at them in in two groups. You've got kind of your traditional email marketing softwares that are built for you to send a broadcast to an audience. That's kind of the core of it. And then there's more like marketing automation platforms. And we sit somewhere in the middle. Um, On one end, you've got MailChimp, Constant Contact, Mailer MailerLite, AWeber. Uh, And then on the other end of the market, you've got tools like Infusionsoft, ActiveCampaign, Drip, Uh, and others that are built more as automation tools.
0: Okay. And you guys fall somewhere in between. So how do you, and okay. So who's setting the vision for the organization? Is that you, is that the CEO And, and what are the different roles between the two of you? Yeah, it's interesting. We're both, um,
1: certainly vision oriented people and in very different ways. Uh, Nathan, our CEO is a product designer by trade. So he's heavily involved in the product. He's actually the product owner in the organization. And of the 37 people on the team, uh, 30, let's see, 34 of them, 33 of them report to me. So that would be engineering, marketing, sales, customer success, and operations. And then the two product designers on the team report directly to the CEO. So he's kind of both CEO and team lead. And so he's very much driving forward on the future of the product, um, the ways we want to market, uh, in terms of doing things like the conference that we launched, the series of documentaries that we launched. And then I'm very much thinking about the vision for how do we operationally work? Uh, How do we scale without scaling the number of people on the team? Because one of the big constraints we put on ourselves is we'd like to stay at 50 people or less over time to keep Mm. this kind of family-oriented culture, to really be able to take great care of the people that are here. Um, So I'm thinking very much about, from an execution standpoint, What's the vision for the future? How does this? How do we make these ideas actually work over time?
0: That's great. Do you know Ari Mizel? I don't. Ari's a guy who's um, based out in the East Coast as well. I think he may actually be based in New York as well. But he, I think his book was called "Less Doing." But he's got a little bit of a model where he looks at everything that an organization does and he runs it through this little filter of can we stop doing it, and then can we optimize it? Can we automate it? Can we outsource it? But it kind of goes along that line of trying to to grow big and keep your your head counted around fifty. That we often get bogged down in just getting bigger for the sake of getting bigger, but without really a, a mindset around optimization and automation and efficiencies and um, and even outsourcing to partners.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: So so tell us about what what are you guys doing then to stay small and to continue to scale?
1: Um, well, one of the things I think that's that's most important is just setting the intention. Uh, so many companies, and especially peer-level companies in the startup world, measure themselves on number of employees. You know? <laughs> we're this big in terms of team size. And so just by starting out with this intention to say, actually, we're not going to measure, we're not going to optimize for team size. We're gonna, well, we're going to optimize for the opposite of a growing team size, I guess. Uh, that really helps us focus on how can we solve problems without adding people.
0: And that's, that's a huge, huge intention that anyone who's listening needs to really kind of grasp because I think too often, you said it is too often people use the headcount as a, a measuring stick, as a yardstick, as a symbol of their success, right?
1: Right. Exactly. And, you know, there's some level of that. You know, if you want to get into a values-driven conversation about the opportunity to create jobs and all this, I think there's an argument for it. Sure. And I'll acknowledge that. Um,
0: yeah, if you else, want to though, be a non-profit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I had a client in New York City called Elite SEM. Their their CEO just ranked as the number 12 company to work for in the United States by Glassdoor. Wow. Um, When I started coaching them five years ago, I coached them for four years. When I started coaching them five years ago, one of their goals was to get to 100 employees. And I'm like, no, guys, you got to remove that. That cannot be a goal. Like that's not an exciting thing to drive towards. Let's, let's drive profitability and employee engagement, customer engagement and revenue, but let's not drive the number of employees for the sake of getting bigger.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Keep going. Go ahead. Yeah. So I guess we, when we have a problem come up, I think one of the most important things we do is we acknowledge the fact that the easiest thing to say is let's hire to solve for it. Okay, fine. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. And then we dive with second, dive in with second-level questions on, what's is this a symptom or a problem? If it's a problem, what are the different ways we could go about solving this with hiring being one of them? And then we go down the list of, is there process? Is there outsourcing? Are there tools that we could be building to solve this thing for a scale that is going to grow over time? Uh, and if hiring ends up being the only way to solve it, then we have a conversation about, whether we should be adding a person to the team.
0: Yeah, exactly. It needs to get done, but not necessarily A, by us, and not necessarily B, by hiring somebody as well. So that's a great great little filter to run it through. How do you guys make decisions on what to start? Um, You know, all the new ideas that an entrepreneurial company has, how do you make decisions on which ones to green light, which ones to red light, or which ones just to shelve for a while?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll admit to you, Cameron, I think this is one of the things that we're struggling to solve for right now as we speak. At this stage of scale is really where decisions have to start having filters on them. I think to this point, the way we've made decisions is, does this align with uh, the leadership team's vision for where we want to go? And what that can often lead to is too many priorities at the same time. And over the past 18, 24 months, what we've learned is we bite off more than we can chew more often than not.
0: That's so normal.
1: What we're trying to do now is create decision-making filters so that we know whether something should be on the list of priorities or whether we should put it <laughs> off for later. And that's a huge challenge.
0: I'll, um, I'll share with you after we uh, after we talk a, a tool I'll also share it in the show notes called the decision filter that I created. And it was based off of a, a tool that Dan Sullivan, who built Strategic Coach, created called an impact filter. And he used to try to, or he does teach companies to decide which projects to say yes to based on their impact on the organization. But I've taken it to the next level because I always feel like we can sell ourselves on every every idea having an impact. But I want to know what the ROI is off of that and the ROI against our time, our people, and our money. And then I also really want to go after the the projects that are kind of the low hanging fruit that can get us into orbit faster. So the um, the ones that will create momentum and that momentum will continue building for us. Versus often I think companies get into their really big hairy projects that can take a year versus cranking off seven really quick small ones that'll give us momentum. Right. Um, but I'll, I'll share that with you later. Tell, that. tell me a little. Tell me a little bit about the um, the employee kind of the recruiting, hiring, training process because when you've got an entirely remote team. Um, that's a pretty unique skill set. I mean, it's becoming more and more normal now, but, but what do you guys use? What tools, what systems, um, how do you hire, et cetera?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, number one, I'll just say that the, to me, the number one advantage to being a remote team is the ability to recruit from everywhere. And that has opened us up to a talent pool that would otherwise, you know, Nathan, our founders, well, you may not know Nathan, our founder is from Boise, Idaho. He's grown up there. His family is there. He loves it there. And recruiting the quality of people that we have on our team in Boise would be much more difficult. It wouldn't be impossible, but it would be very difficult. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is that everyone is a potential hire for us, which is fantastic. Second thing is that the hardest thing about it is that everyone is a potential hire for us, which means we (laughs) have to create our own focus filters so that we're um, not going after everyone. We're going after the right people. So there's a couple of things that we've done that have really helped. Number one is we use software called Workable to manage our, our pipeline and recruiting process. Um, all of our applications go into that system and we filter them there through uh, the pipeline of hiring from application to hire. Uh, the second thing is we found some great partners where we post our jobs regularly. So a couple of sites that we post on regularly are weworkremotely.com. It's exclusively for remote working jobs. Um, We post on higher tech ladies, uh, which is a great way to make sure that one of our priorities is to make sure our applicant pool is diverse and inclusive. Because if the applicant pool is diverse and inclusive, then it means that we are much more likely to hire people Mm -hmm. who are diverse and inclusive. Mm -hmm. Um, So higher tech ladies is a great one for us. We post on uh, people of color and tech is another great one. And then what we found is that those Three sites alone produce an inordinate number of highly qualified applicants compared to everywhere else we might post.
0: Wow, no kidding. We've
1: tried sites like Indeed, Monster, things like that. They tend to produce, on average, a very low-quality candidate. Uh, And then there's some that are kind of in between. LinkedIn, it can be hit and miss depending on how you target the posting. We often target for New York and San Francisco when we post to LinkedIn because that's where so much of the tech talent is concentrated Right and uh, people, other people will still be able to see that post even though it's in those cities.
0: interesting. do you have a, a a center point where you've got a few cities that you're hiring people in, or do you even look for that at all?
1: Um, we don't uh, okay. the one priority that we've placed is on people in uh, North American equivalent time zones. Okay. Um, the reason for that is as you get an eight and 10 and 12 hour gap in time zone between teammates working hours, it just gets that much harder to collaborate and uh, work together on projects. So we don't rule out hiring people outside of North America, but we do prioritize applications uh, just for the efficiency of the organization.
0: Yeah, I've coached CEOs in Australia, and it just gets tough because we're really limited to four days in a, in a week that we can be doing coaching and really only a limit of about a few hours of a day. So it really kind of strips away the availability of time. Right. Um, how do you, And by the way, Boise, Idaho, one of my favorite restaurants in the world is in Boise. Have you been to a place called Barbacoa? I have not. you got to go check it out. It's spectacular food. It's, um, it's in a weird little area. It's like off the edge of a highway, and it's um, on, on some lake a small little okay. lake um but the yeah this restaurant it was called barbacoa and it was spectacular food i had like three meals there in a 48 hour period because i was so obsessed with it i was in town doing a speaking event and they stuck me at this little holiday inn right there i was literally bummed out and then i found the best food in the world <laughs> um, so i was okay so okay you've got the you go through the interview process and thanks for sharing those sound like really really amazing tools to um to dig into as well Tell us now, after you've got your applicant pool and you're using Workable to screen people through the, the process, what are you looking for for candidates? How do you run your interview process? And, um, and have you done training of your, your people on interviewing?
1: Yeah, so I will say that we could be much more efficient in screening applicants with things like software and tools. We choose not to be right now because of our intention to hire so few people. So we have a highly manual screening process where we're really looking for outliers in the way they communicate, and the way that they put time into their application, which would mean that a, an automated filter could easily rule people out that are the kind of people that are exactly who we're looking for. So when we're going through applications, typically the manager who is hiring for the role is looking at each application where... Specifically focused on what their cover letter looks like, and we ask a couple of questions that are that are qualitative information. You know, what kind of person is this? Uh, I would have to I'd have to follow up for the show notes in terms of exactly what questions we ask for different teams. But we're looking for a type of person, and then we're looking for skill set. So if we can get a person through the type of person we're looking for filter, which means that they're going to be a huge contributor to culture that they're not just looking to work remotely. That's a huge challenge we have as a remote company is that it seems incredibly attractive to a lot of people who are not going to be high performers. And so we've got to filter between are you just looking for a remote job or are you looking for a remote job at ConvertKit because you're excited about this work? A big tool for this that, that's that been a little bit of a hack for us has been that we published uh, a page at convertkit.com slash mission. And in it, we outlined our mission a very detailed vision, our values as a team, and then uh, what we consider our competitive advantage, which is that we care so much about each customer that we serve. And that page being linked to from job postings has been an interesting conversation piece where we know who's done their research because a lot of the people who end up there end up mentioning it in their application. And those are the people that we find are really, really excited about this work at this company, not just their next job.
0: That's cool. I like that you're really intentional about your whole process as well, and it's not just happening by accident. So you've you've got the people kind of coming in. How do you onboard them? Onboarding has been uh,
1: something that we spent a lot of time on over the past year, I'd say, and it went from uh, it varied by team for a long time to now we've got a pretty great process where we invite members from across the teams at the company to uh, host one-on-ones with the new person on the team to show them, oftentimes it's a tool that we use internally. So one person might have a one-on-one where they catch up a little bit and then they show them how we use Slack as a team. The next person might have a one-on-one and then they show them how we use Basecamp to project, plan, and communicate ideas as a team. And so a large part of the first week for any given person is centered around getting to know teammates who are also teaching them something that they're going to need to know about how we operate. And we found that to be incredibly effective.
0: I'm thinking a little bit about culture as well. How do you, how, the, the whole remote teams business, and, and it's working. I mean, there's um, another client that I coached that just ranked as the number two company to work for by Glassdoor. And they're a completely remote team of 85 people, just like you guys are. How do you guys build a culture with these employees when everyone's remote? What tools do you use and, um, and how do you develop that culture? It sounds like vision is a part of that and, and your hiring process for sure, but what else do you do?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we ha- kind of have the heartbeat of the organization, which lives in two places. So Slack is kind of the synchronous day-to-day communication where everyone's getting together. The other is Basecamp and Basecamp is where we're really sharing ideas, pitching each other on Uh, potential projects we might take on and then planning those projects as we decide to prioritize them. But on top of that is a layer of meeting structure that we found to be very meaningful. I think that we try and treat meetings as culture builders as opposed to blocks of time that are wasted. That's awesome. So every Monday we have an all-hands meeting with all 37 people on the team and we'll do 10 maybe 15 minutes of updates across the teams which we try to tie together with an overarching story from the leadership team about where we are and where we're going over this next week. And the other 45 minutes is a team conversation about something that matters right now. So one example of this is we are, are hosting our second annual conference uh, at the time of this recording. It's next week. And we had a, a recent call about the logistics of that conference. And we invited ideas for how to make it even better in these last couple of weeks leading up to it. We had each contributor to the planning process share what they've been working on. And so it's very participatory. Um, But there have been other meetings where uh, we've invited the entire team to come ready to give the leadership team candid and direct feedback about how we're performing and how we're leading and how we need to get better over time. So that's one huge culture contributor where people find it very odd how frank we are with each other when they're coming from environments that might be more political Mm -hmm or uh, a little bit more reserved. And that's one aspect of our culture that we try and build throughout our meetings. And,
0: and It's it pretty starts. comfortable once you get used to it, though, isn't
1: it? It is. It's, it actually it gives you a lot less to be anxious about at work because people are communicating directly and honestly yep. with each other. So the last thing I'll say about culture is we do twice-a-year retreats. Uh, we get all 37 people in one physical location. We do one in the winter in February. We do one in the uh, summer in August. They are in San Diego in the winter, and uh, north of Boise, Idaho, in a, a town called McCall in August. And we use those as an opportunity to really dive deep on relationship building, on vision casting, and on planning for the next six months. And what I find is that those retreats are these lifelines, especially to the extroverts in the group, where almost anyone can make it six months, before, you know, if they're disciplined and get that re-up of energy and connection and relationship building and then go back home and get back to work. And so it creates this nice balance of really having these deep and meaningful relationships because if you're in a person in a place with a person for a week, you can learn a lot about, it, you know, and with the, for sure. like that. Uh, so that's are your been, retreats are a week long. They're a week long. Uh, our awesome. international teammates come in on the Saturday prior to adjust to the time difference. We kick things off Sunday night with a big team dinner and then people fly out Friday morning.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Well done. That's, that's, that's huge commitment onto culture for sure. Um, I'm glad you actually mentioned the meeting rhythms as well. One of the books that I, I wrote um, a year and a half ago was called meetings suck. And I was just so tired of people complaining about meetings when the reality is most people have never actually been trained on how to run meetings and even how to show up and participate at meetings. So it's good that you guys actually get it and they're running them properly because they're a huge part of giving people the tools to grow their, to grow the company.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you have to stay focused on it because if you do it well, they're great. And if you get lazy, they fall apart.
0: So talk to, you know, they totally fall apart. Tell us about um, the whole performance management side of the business. How do you oversee all the projects? How do we ensure that stuff's getting done and, and getting done quickly and getting done right? Um, and then how are you growing the people?
1: Yeah, so this is a, another area where we're continuing to evolve. So I'll share our current process and then flaws that we see in that process. Great, uh, sure. We set strategy for the year. And that strategy looks like usually three to four thematic strategies for the year across the company. Um, This year, for example, uh, one of our biggest strategic priorities is to be able to tie revenue to email activity in our application so that we can prove that creators are earning a living by using our tool. It's obviously not worded in that long of a a statement. but So we, we set things out like that. And then the te- individual teams. So we have five, I believe. So it's engineering, operations, marketing, sales, and success. Uh, take those strategic priorities, and they say, "Okay, how do these apply to our work? And what is the strategy? What are the strategies we're going to follow that roll up into these larger company strategies?" And they set goals off of those priorities. So each team has uh, their goals for uh, the year, and then each quarter we adjust. So the leadership team, there are seven of us. Um, There are directors for each of the five teams. And then Nathan and I as CEO and COO. And we go quarterly. When we have our team retreats, we buttress it on either the beginning or the end of it with our planning meeting. And then in between three months in between each retreat, we get the leadership team together to plan for the quarter. And that's where we're making the more fine tuned adjustments and uh, prioritizing the work for the following three months to make sure that we're focused on the right things so that's what goal setting looks like and then what we have our directors do is they meet with each person on the team and they say okay how do, how can you contribute to where we're going as a company over this quarter uh, and what goals do you want to pursue both as from a professional standpoint that we need you to accomplish in order for the team to accomplish its goals but also from a personal development standpoint how do you want to grow as a human and as a professional this quarter what are you going to focus on and there's not a lot in that last quarter category because you can't do too many things at once, but we are looking for at least one thing from every person. How are you going to grow? And that might range from, I'm going to create a physical fitness practice over this quarter because I see my health not being where I want it to be. Or it might be, I'm going to start a YouTube channel as a side project to learn more about content creation and everything in between.
0: How do you manage your team in terms of them wanting to have side businesses? Um, We highly encourage it. Okay. Um, We have a a channel in our Slack
1: team uh, that is for side projects. There's a group of people who get together early in the morning about once a month to talk about their side projects and the progress they're making. And the reason we encourage it is that we like to hire people who are creators themselves because we think they're going to have more passion for the creators we serve if we do. And if we take away their ability to be a creator by them working here, then we're losing the magic of that. So we see side projects as a way for our team to stay connected to the people we serve over time.
0: That's interesting. I love it. Where are you guys struggling? (laughs)
1: Let me count the ways. (laughs) Um, Well, we're at a, we're at an interesting point in scale where we've had tremendous growth and um, we've built this wonderful culture that we all enjoy quite a bit. And now to go from 20,000 customers to 100,000 customers, the architecture that the app is built on is gonna need to change. Mm -hmm. Um, The way we handle things like spam detection is going to need to change because if we let spammers into our app, it affects all of our great customers at the same time. So a lot of the things that we've been able to get by on with manual solutions to this point are having to be automated. And that's a new area of growth for everyone on the team, because we have to go from, I can just apply more hours to this, to I have to apply a different kind of thinking to this. And that requires growth from everyone. Every individual has to grow in order to shift that thinking that way. So I would say that's the biggest thing. And then maintaining a level of growth at scale is different from hustling to get that early growth that you see in in a startup before you found the full product market fit. And that's a challenge to continue growing at the scale.
0: And where, how do you guys do that? Do you actually decide what you want your growth to be and then reverse engineer that? Or do you forecast what you think your growth is going to be and manage into it?
1: A little bit of both. We definitely work with both models in terms of what we want and what we see as realistic. This year, what we did after setting targets that ended up being discouraging for the team in past planning sessions is that we set a consistent pace we wanted to hit. So we said, this is the net new MRR that we believe is achievable, and it will get harder over time because as the customer base grows, churn grows in nominal amount. So we set a consistent pace that we wanted to hit throughout the year to prove to ourselves that we could create predictable success over time, which is a a term that Les McKeon coined. And we like this idea of intentionally being being able to create an amount of growth over time because that indicates to us that we can scale that if we want to.
0: I really I love the, the planning process and the rigor um, behind the planning and the meetings that you guys seem to have in your business. So I know you also take that down to the one-on-one level in your one-on-one coaching. Mm-hmm. Walk us through your, your one-on-one meetings and how those work. Uh,
1: well, the first thing is that I see one-on-ones as... Um, time for team members to express what they're challenged by, what they need from us as leaders and what they're hoping for from their work. We very much make one-on-ones driven by the teammate that we're having the one-on-one with. So if done properly, that person's put some thought into what kind of conversation do I want to have with my manager right now? Now, if they haven't had time for that, it's still our job as leaders to say, Hey, what's going on? Number one, how are you doing as a human? Because if you're not doing well as a human, you're probably not going to do great work. Number two, what are you struggling with and where can I help? And then number three, if we get past your agenda and we get through those two questions, then I got a couple of things that I want to prioritize and talk to you about. But if we're not creating space for people to share what they're struggling with, um, share their ideas, then, you know, they'll do the job, but I just don't think they'll stay as engaged as they should.
0: That's interesting. Now, how about yourself? What are you focusing on Then, where are you working on?
1: Uh, Well, right now I've been in this role for uh, going on four months, I guess. So I just started this year and we've intentionally set out a transition process where over time a new team is coming up under me for the reporting structure. So right now what I'm focused on is getting in on the ground level with different people across the teams to see uh, directly with my own eyes what their work looks like and not just see it, but do it. So for example, we have a team that manages customers coming over from competitors where if you have a large enough email list, we'll do it for you. You give us your login to your old tool, you'll tell us what you want your new setup to be and we get it done for you. But we don't start billing you until it's done. So I'm doing one of these migrations for one of our large customers right now to see for myself the challenges that team might be facing. Um, so it's almost like, a, you know, you'll hear a, a new senior executive of a Fortune 500 company come in and they'll do a year-long listening tour, travel the globe, visit all of their It's the equivalent of that, but I'm doing the work so that I understand it better
0: across the teams. That's interesting. I love that. Now, what about your um, your personal growth as a COO over the years? How have you had to grow?
1: Uh, I have to grow every day. I mean, um, you know, I think there's kind of there's parts of this role that require different things of me. So one of them is emotional growth. Uh, You have to put other people's needs first and you have to be able to both make objective decisions and then communicate objective decisions in a way that connects with the humanity on the other end of that decision. Um, So emotional growth as a leader, I think is just the EQ and the interpersonal skills I'm always being challenged by. Filtering my own emotions, communicating effectively, Building interpersonal relationships so that there's plenty of trust. That's a big area for me. Secondly, is skill set. Um, as we scale, you know, I've not built a company to this level of scale before. And so I'm having to level up my own skill set, my own knowledge of tools and processes and opportunities to automate things mm. in a way that I've never had to. And that's exciting to me. That's exactly why I love the role. But it also means that if I'm not doing it effectively, the company is going to lose out because of it. So I'm constantly looking at where are my shortcomings. What are the processes I can learn about? What are the role models as at an organizational level we should be looking at? What can we learn from them?
0: Yeah, that's great. We actually spend a lot of time at the COO Alliance talking about the CEO COO relationship and the skill sets that have to be developed there with communication, handling good healthy conflicts. Um, you know, really kind of kind of growing because both for normally for both parties, it's the biggest company they've ever run. How are you and Nathan as CEO, how are you and he working on your communication skills and, and kind of growing together as a CEO, COO team?
1: Yeah, so we have the great gift of having known each other for, for years before we worked together um, and being oh, nice. very good friends. Uh, that's also a great challenge because it means that you bring uh, existing relational baggage into a working relationship. And that's been really challenging for us. It's just like a marriage. You know. It's, it's that level of relationship in terms of how many hours you have to spend and how closely you have to work. So in making this transition to COO, one of the key things that we did was we put in place a daily stand-up for Nathan and I. Mm. And we have at least 30 minutes every day where we're setting an agenda. We're having specific conversations about the biggest things that are changing in the business to make sure that when we go to the teams, we're not having conflict in front of the team. We've already talked about the major issues so that we have alignment and we can facilitate conversation instead of he and I of trying to figure out where we're each at on the issue.
0: So walk, yeah, walk us through how your daily standup works then. So the daily standup works, uh,
1: we've, we've implemented this new practice that came from, um, I'm going to forget his name. Uh, I can follow up with you afterwards, but it's the idea of a stoplight at the beginning of every meeting. We say, how are you doing? Interpersonally, green, yellow, red, and why? So we start every one-on-one with green, yellow, red, and that tells us our capacity on that day to have deep, challenging, conflicting conversations uh, versus just needing to kind of connect and hear each other out. That's great. Uh, so green, yellow usually indicates that we can dive into pretty much anything. Yellow saying we got to be a little bit more careful about how, you know, how abrasive we might be with one another on a given day. Uh, red says, okay, we just need to connect, touch base, and then we'll, we'll call it quits for today. Uh, So that's the first thing. Second thing is we've already made an agenda. It's nothing fancy. we maintain it in a Google Doc. We add a new date at the top, and we add our three or five bullet points, and we run down the list. We prioritize by the most important issue for helping the teams move forward or that they need our input on, and then we take notes right there in that document and leave with action items at the end of it and then uh, get on to the next thing.
0: The rigor in that process. And I love the check in the head check just to make sure that, you know, the other person is ready. And, and do you do that in your one on ones with your direct employees as well? We do, yeah. Yeah, it's such a powerful product because there's days when you're just not ready to talk about anything at all, and there's others when you know they're ready to dive in for sure. Um, you mentioned a couple times around how you're using Basecamp, and you actually use Basecamp as almost a place to build out the projects before they get proposed. Not only to manage projects you're working on as a company, but also to kind of build them out before they get pitched to the team. How do you? Um, how do they use it for that?
1: Yeah, so one of the one of the features in Basecamp that we really love are their message board. Uh, is their message board feature. And uh, there's kind of two heuristics in Basecamp. One is teams, and one is projects. So each team in the company has their own Basecamp area, and then each project we're working on has its own Basecamp area. And each team has a message board, each project does. So within teams, including the HQ team, which is everyone, anyone in the company can type up a proposal for an idea or share something that they'd like to share. And we've used that for a variety of purposes over time. Uh, one of those purposes is that we'll write almost like an internal block where someone has a concept or a culture-building idea that they want to share with the rest of the team. They'll write it up just like you would a blog post and publish it there. But another one is that we might have an idea for a project we want to pursue, and it would be just like a project pitch, you know? Overview, summary of what it is, the objective of why we might do it, and uh, the details of the idea. And then that allows for a comment feed afterwards for people to weigh in. Uh, That's great. So we do that at different stages of projects. You know, Once an idea comes in on um, a name for a new project we're working on or a logo or, or whatever, then there's this opportunity for the rest of the team to comment on it as well.
0: It's almost like because you're remote, you're being forced to have these amazing systems and processes in place for everything. You're, you're forced to use these tools. They're meant to, you know, designed to be used. But um, a lot of companies miss out on that, I guess, because they're, they're all local and in the same office. They kind of get lazy, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, you have to work very hard. We have to work very hard to communicate. Uh, you know, the, the challenge that does create on the other end of it is that at times there can be so much information flowing that it's easy for things to get missed. And mm-hmm. so that's a challenge we're actively trying to address is how do we make sure the right people on the team get the information they need without being distracted by everything?
0: Then do you guys use Zoom then to communicate or like video conference with each other? Yes, so? all of our all of our one-on-ones and team meetings are through Zoom on video. Yeah, that's great because that also helps with the, uh, with the culture side. Um, the final question just kind of dawned on me when right at the beginning you said that you're kind of in the middle between all these different competitors. How do you as a company and, and how do you keep your employees focused on your vision of what you guys are as a company versus being distracted and pulled in all those different directions?
1: Well, it's a regular struggle. Uh, you know, I think that there's a certain amount of competitor analysis that's really healthy keeps you trained on what the market's doing and where it's going and then there's a certain point where you have to say okay that's great we know what they're doing now we're going to do us i think the thing that keeps us grounded is being connected to the the specific group of people we're trying to serve and it's um you know the youtubers Hmm. and the musicians and the photographers and all of the creators that make up our market they will guide us they will tell us what they need And what they need is often very different from what any given competitor might be building at any given time. And I think that's the anchor we always try and tie it back to is great. Know what the competition is doing, but always build the thing the creators need, not what someone else is building.
0: It's so simplistically brilliant, too. I had dinner with the CEO over in India years ago, and he said, Americans are so crazy. He said, you all try to build products that you love and sell them things to people that don't need them or haven't asked for them. And I'm like, well, what do you do? He goes, well, we have 3 billion people or a billion people over here. We just ask them what they want and we sell it to them. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of works. Barrett, thank you so much for sharing all your ideas with us today. The wisdom, um, really, really appreciate it. And uh, guarantee I'm going to be coming to visit you and hang out when I'm in New York City later on this fall.
1: That's great. I would love that. Thanks for
0: having awesome me. Awesome stuff. And check out Barbecue when you're visiting with uh, your CEO in, uh, in Boise next time. You guys I'll be there next week. Up there. Sounds great. Take care. Thanks again for all the time today. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.